So our first study, study one in this series, is called From Persecutor to Missionary. From Persecutor to Missionary. And we begin by looking at Paul's early life. Now, he was named Saul, as I'm sure you know, by his Jewish parents. In fact, it wasn't until he was in Cyprus on his first missionary journey that he became known as Paul. And you'll see that in Acts 13 and verse 9. Now, Saul was born in Tarsus. Tarsus is the capital city of the Roman province of Cilicia in the south of what is now Turkey. And he was born there probably around 5 BC. 5 BC. At that time, Tarsus was an important commercial centre. It was a university city. It had palaces. It had vast marketplaces. There was a lot of trade went through Tarsus. It had roads. It had bridges. It had baths. It had fountains. It had waterworks. It even had a gymnasium on the banks of the River Sidnus. And it had a state-of-the-art, for those days, stadium. It was a grand city, a grand city, Tarsus. And such grandeur may be the reason why Paul described Tarsus as, quote, no ordinary city, no ordinary city. Uh, That phrase was actually used by Euripides to describe Athens, if you're interested. Um, But Paul used it to describe Tarsus. And he described himself in Acts 21 and verse 39 as, I quote, a citizen of no ordinary city. Now it could be, and historians are not too sure about this, it could be that back in 66 BC, so several years, 60 odd years before Paul, uh, Saul was actually born, a year after making Tarsus the capital city of Cilicia, the emperor Pompey conferred Roman citizenship on all its inhabitants. So 66 BC, Pompey confers Roman citizens on all the citizens of Tarsus because it's now the capital of Cilicia. Nobody is 100% sure about that, but that's the best guess. And it was in conversation with Claudius Lysias, the commander of the Roman garrison in Jerusalem, that Paul revealed that he was a Roman citizen by birth. And you can see that in Acts 22 and verse 28. Now there were three ways you could become a Roman citizen. Three ways. One, you could receive it. You could receive citizenship as a reward. As a reward for services to the empire. That was one way. A second way was to buy it. And you needed a lot of money to buy citizenship. You had to buy it at a great price. And this is what Claudius Lysias had actually done. You'll see in Acts 22, 28. He bought his citizenship. Or thirdly, the way to have Roman citizenship was to be born into a family of Roman citizens. And that's Saul's situation. He was born into a family of Roman citizens. Now you see in Acts 22 and verse 3 that he describes himself as being, and I quote, 
brought up in this city. And by that, he's meaning Jerusalem. Now, it's not known how old he was when he came to live in Jerusalem, or for that matter, where he learned his skills as a tent maker. See Acts 18 and verse 3. His sister, so you see, Paul wasn't an only child. A lot of people think he was, but he wasn't. He had at least one other sibling, a sister. His sister was still living in Jerusalem with her son many years later. And you can see that in Acts 23 and verse 16. His father, his father was a Pharisee. Acts 23 verse 6 tells us. And he studied under Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was the most famous Jewish teacher of his time. And Paul speaks of his zealousness, his zealousness as a student and how this affected his life. You might want to turn to Acts 22, verses 3 to 5, to just look at this. Acts 22, verses 3 to 5, when he speaks of his zealousness. And this is what we read, and I'm quoting, Under Gamaliel I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers, and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. He's talking to the Jews. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. That's the end of the quote. And you see, it's in this context of persecuting the followers of the way that Luke, who you know is the author of Acts, introduces Saul, as he was then, into his narrative. So that's how we first meet Saul. That's how Luke introduces him as the persecutor. So we're now going to look at the persecution years, as I've called this next section. Saul was present at the death of Stephen, who you know was the first Christian martyr. It's not known whether he heard what Stephen had to say to the Jewish council, to the Sanhedrin, but he could well have been in charge of the stoning which followed, since we read in Acts 7.58, and I quote, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. The witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So it looks from that evidence as though he could well have been in charge of the stoning. Now, look with me at Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. Philippians 3, verses 5 to 6. And here, in these verses, Paul describes his pedigree as a Jew. And this is what he says, and I'm quoting, Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Now 
that's some claim, isn't it? As for legalistic righteousness, said Paul, I was faultless. Now, that last phrase shows that at this point in his life, pious Saul wasn't looking for a Messiah from God to come and cleanse his conscience of sin. Because as far as he was concerned, he stood blameless before God. Why did he need a Messiah to come and cleanse his conscience? He didn't. He was blameless. Because he lived his life, he believed, according to the will of God, as laid down in the law and the prophets, just indeed as all the Pharisees did. Now, something else that Paul also mentions in these verses that you may have spotted. He mentions how far his zeal for Judaism took him. And so it says in there, and I quote, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for zeal, that's his zeal for Judaism, persecuting the church. Something which, in those days before his conversion, he used as a badge of honour. This was something to be proud of. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, if you'd like to turn to that. Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. And here in these verses, we're going to see that Paul also speaks of the zeal of those persecution years. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I'm quoting from Galatians 1, 13 to 14. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. That's a very interesting statement, isn't it? You know, he was way ahead, he was saying, of other students of his own age, people of his own age, in his zeal. And his zeal for Judaism drove him to persecute the church. So for this zealous Pharisee, the stoning of Stephen was just the start. It was just the start of a bitter, orchestrated campaign against these followers of the way. And in Acts 8.3, Luke records that, and I quote, Saul began to destroy the church. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Now, the Greek in this verse, chapter 8, verse 3, is very interesting because the wording that it uses, the vocabulary employs, or I should say Luke employs, depicts Saul as behaving like a wild animal. That's, that's the force of it in the Greek. Behaving like a wild animal ravaging its prey. That's the picture of Saul persecuting the church like a wild animal ravaging its prey. And in, 
in chapter 9 and verse 1 of Acts, Luke described him as, and I quote, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And Paul himself testified in Acts 26 and verse 10, and I quote, that on the authority of the chief priests, I put many saints, meaning Christians, followers of the way, I put many saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In other words, he voted in the Sanhedrin for their deaths. You see, Saul was so convinced, so convinced of the rightness of his cause in the eyes of God and so determined to obliterate what he saw as a deviant sect of Judaism and to keep the religion he loved pure and to keep it free from apostasy, that's false teaching, that he even went to the high priest in Acts 9 and verse 2 to ask, and I quote, for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And the purpose of that was that they would then be put on trial before the Sanhedrin as the ones he'd rounded up in Jerusalem had been where he cast his vote against them and he was all going to do the same with this lot that thought they'd escaped to Damascus. Now in future years, of course, he looked back on these times and he reflected on what he'd done. And in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9, he says this, and I quote, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. So why did he do it? Why did he persecute the church of God? What was it about the Jewish Christians that rattled his cage so violently? What was it? Well, two things mainly. First of all, it was their belief in a crucified Messiah. Not their belief in a Messiah, but their belief in a crucified Messiah. You see, for Saul and Jews like him, to believe this, a crucified Messiah was outrageous. It was completely beyond the pale. Paul would later describe it as, and I'm quoting, the offence, the offence of the cross. The offence of the cross. You can see that in Galatians 5 and verse 11. And he would later say that, and I quote, to preach Christ crucified was a stumbling block to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And you can find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. 
Now, you see, let's get this sorted out. The title Messiah or Christ, which is the Greek equivalent. So really, Jesus Christ means Jesus the Messiah. It wasn't his surname. It was a title. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. It should be, really, but shortened to Jesus Christ. Messiah or Christ means anointed one. It means anointed one. Now, down the years, the Jews had come to believe that their Messiah would be anointed by God, anointed one, would be anointed by God to carry out a fourfold mission. Number one, to restore the throne of David, which is why son of David became a code for the Messiah. Secondly, to save and rescue them from their oppressors, currently the Romans, and drive them out of the land. Thirdly, to go on and conquer the whole world, making them, his chosen people, the rulers. And four, to set up a worldwide, righteous, everlasting kingdom that could be marked on a map. So they didn't expect much of the Messiah, did they? Something you could accomplish in 24 hours. The Messiah, you see, was Israel's great hope. And his coming was imminent. He would be their deliverer, their saviour, their glorious and victorious king. He'd do spectacular things to authenticate, to prove who he was that he really was the Messiah. He would have unlimited power and be able to provide for his people in every way. There was not the faintest, not the remotest, not the smallest suggestion of the Messiah dying, let alone on a cross. The cross... That was a way of degradation. That was the way of humiliation. That was the way of a curse. Deuteronomy 21 and 23. And clearly, they didn't identify the suffering servant that Isaiah talks about with the Messiah. What they did identify it with was the nation. They thought the nation of Israel was the suffering servant. It was symbolic of the nation. So, can you see how for the Jews to believe in a crucified Messiah would be a fundamental change, to put it mildly, to their core beliefs? So, that's one thing that really got Paul annoyed, angry, in a rage, their belief in a crucified Messiah. Secondly, there was their belief that Gentiles didn't have to convert to Judaism in order to stand before God. They just needed to repent and believe in the saving work of Christ on the cross to become God's people. See Acts 11 verses 19 to 21. For Saul... This would call into question the whole matter of the Jews 
as God's chosen people, along with its marker. And its marker was circumcision. Not to mention the barriers between Jew and Gentile being broken down, which was unthinkable. For Saul, you see, this was a threat a threat to the holiness and the uniqueness of the Jewish people and their separation from the Gentiles. We are separate from them. We are God's chosen people. We are not like them. Okay, we trade with them, but we wash our hands when we've done it and all that sort of thing. It was intolerable to Saul's mind. So a zealous Jew was left with no alternative but to stamp out this radical sect that threatened to bring the whole edifice of Judaism crashing down. Now turn with me to Acts 9. Acts chapter 9 and you'll need... One finger in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, and the other one in Acts 22, verses 5 to 11. So Acts 9, 1 to 9, and Acts 22, 5 to 11. Now Saul would have heard that several of, quote, the Lord's disciples who belonged to the way, look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, had fled and they'd fled the 150 miles or so northeast to you know where Damascus in the Roman province of Syria in the hope of escaping the persecution that Saul was orchestrating (coughs) excuse me and this really rankled with him also he would have been concerned that if these followers of the way refugees gained a following among the large Jewish community in Damascus, which was linked by trade routes to several other cities in the Roman world, you can see what he's thinking, I'm sure, then their poison, as he saw it, could soon be spread and infect Jews all over the Roman Empire. There was no end to it. It had got to be dealt with at source. So Damascus was the place he wanted to go. This had to be stopped at all costs. And this is probably why we find Saul in the offices of the high priest asking him for the letters to the synagogues in Damascus that we mentioned earlier. Now, here we have two parallel accounts in Acts of Saul's pivotal, life-changing encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and its aftermath. The second one in Acts 22 is, in fact, Paul's testimony in later years to these events, given when he'd been arrested on a visit to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. Now, both accounts say that a, quote, light from heaven flashed around him. Chapter 9, verse 3, chapter 22, verse 6. Now, Paul's testimony, so when I say Paul's testimony, you know I mean Acts 22, 
Paul's testimony adds the detail that this happened, quote, about noon. This light caused Saul to fall to the ground. The appearance of the light was followed in quick succession by the sound of a voice saying, quote, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Chapter 9, 4, chapter 22, 7. Now this is significant because by persecuting Christ's followers, Saul was in fact persecuting Christ himself. Now as a rabbi, the brightness of the light and the repeated use of his name, not once but twice, would have been enough to convince Saul that he was in fact in the presence of God. So this is why Saul addressed the voice as Lord. And he asks, and I quote, Who are you, Lord? The voice replied, quote, I am Jesus. In one of them it says Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Chapter 9, 5, 8. The men travelling with Saul were rendered, quote, speechless and didn't see anyone, 9, 7, 22, 9. Apparently they heard the sound of the voice but, quote, did not understand, unquote, what the voice was saying, 22, 9. Saul was then given these instructions, quote, get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do, 9.6. Paul recalled in chapter 22, verse 11, quote, my companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Now Saul was taken to the house of Judas and Judas lived on what was called Straight Street. Straight Street was the main east-west thoroughfare of Damascus and his blindness remained for three days during which time he fasted and prayed and it's at this point as I'm sure we all know that Ananias comes on the scene so let's move on in Acts 9 to verses 10 to 19 and stay with Acts 22 and move on to verses 12 to 16 so what do we know about him What do we know about Ananias? Well, Ananias was a pious Jew, like Saul himself. But he had become a follower of the way. And yet, this is the interesting thing about Ananias to me, in spite of that, he still retained the respect of the Jewish community in Damascus, even though he'd gone the other way. You know, joined the other sect, I suppose they would think of it as. He was respected by them, though, because he lived an upright life according to the law of Moses. That's why they respected him. In fact, in verse 12 of 22, Paul describes him as, quote, a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. And I'm sure we know that God spoke to Ananias in a vision and what he said must have shaken Ananias to the core. 
look at chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. And let's see what God spoke to Ananias. Quote, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Imagine you're Ananias. Not surprisingly, Ananias was not too keen on racing around to Saul's current address and told the Lord exactly why he wasn't keen on doing it. But God then explained the situation to Ananias. And if you look at verses 15 to 16, and I quote, This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Well, Saul must have been wondering what this man Ananias, who he'd seen in his vision, would have to say to him when he came. He was probably expecting words of censure, expressions of anger directed at him. Instead, Ananias spoke significant words, significant words into Saul's life. First of all, what does he call him? He calls him brother. Brother. A greeting which spoke of acceptance, which spoke of forgiveness, which spoke of welcome. And you know, this was a greeting which Paul never forgot. Paul never forgot Ananias calling him brother. And he recalled it all those years later, as you can see in chapter 22 and verse 13. Secondly, Ananias confirmed to Saul that it was indeed the resurrected Jesus who appeared to him on the road. He hadn't merely seen a vision. He'd actually met the resurrected Jesus. And years later, Paul would write that he has, quote, seen Jesus our Lord, unquote. Seen Jesus our Lord, and include himself in the list of witnesses to the resurrection. He includes himself in the list of witnesses to the resurrection. Looking at 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1 and 15 verse 8. And I quote, And last of all, says Paul, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. He appeared to me also, I witnessed the resurrection, I've seen the risen Lord, as to one abnormally born. Now by this last phrase, as to one abnormally born, Paul was referring to the fact that he had not lived with Jesus and transitioned into becoming an apostle as the others had. The circumstances of him becoming an apostle were not normal like that at all. 
Indeed, it could be said that Paul actually had apostleship thrust upon him. So that's really important to grasp that. Third thing that Ananias said was that through the power of the name of Jesus, Saul's sight was to be restored and he was to be filled with the Spirit, empowering him for what lay ahead. And so, having been baptised, Saul the persecutor began his unique transition into Paul the Apostle. Now, in my opinion, it's impossible to overestimate the cataclysmic impact that this encounter with the living Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus had upon Saul the Pharisee the persecutor of the disciples of Christ, the champion of Orthodox Judaism. It shook the very foundations of his whole belief system. And sometimes I don't think we realise this. We just kind of think, oh, Saul had this Damascus Road experience and he became a Christian and, and, and went around preaching the gospel. Yes, there was a lot more to that going on in Saul's mind and in his life. So what main changes did this experience bring about in Saul's theological beliefs? Well, the main one was obviously going to be in what he believed about Jesus Christ, having just met him in person. No longer could he see Jesus as a false prophet or just another claimant of messiahship. Now he believed that Jesus was undeniably and incontrovertibly the Messiah, the Christ, the holy, risen, ascended, exalted and glorified Son of God. And this truth, this truth totally transformed his thinking and underpinned all his preaching and all his writing. And as a result of his changed view of Christ, his belief about salvation changed too. Saul now saw salvation as coming through faith in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, on the cross alone, where, quote, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, Galatians 3.13, rather than through obeying the law of Moses and relying on God's grace towards his chosen people. And the corollary of such a conviction was that salvation must therefore be available to the Gentiles without them having to become converts to Judaism. If, you didn't, if salvation didn't come through the law of Moses anymore, it came through faith in Christ, then Gentiles can't need to become Jews and obey the laws. Let's look at chapter 9, verses 19 to 30. As soon as he could, Saul, and I quote, began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God, verse 20. This man who had come to Damascus to round up and imprison people who, quote, call on this name, verse 21, had become one of their number. No wonder the Jews in Damascus were baffled. 
baffled by the change that had occurred in Saul. They would have heard all about him and what he was doing in Jerusalem and why he was coming to Damascus. I'm sure they knew very well. And baffled, furthermore, by his ability to out-argue them. Look at verse 22, quote, proving that Jesus is the Christ. This Jesus who was crucified, remember where he started off, that this Jesus who was crucified is the Christ. This is the total transformation, in a nutshell, in Paul's beliefs. Now what happened next isn't clear. The many days that we see in verse 23 that Saul spent in Damascus could actually be the three years that he refers to in Galatians 1, 17 to 18, after which Saul went to Jerusalem. And he went to Jerusalem in AD 37. In those verses in Galatians, Paul says that after his conversion, he, quote, went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. End of quote. Now, I don't know if you realise it, but the actual borders of Arabia actually extended to the suburbs of Damascus in those days. So it wasn't like he was doing a million miles, okay? It was, wasn't a very long distance at all to be in Arabia from Damascus. So if that's correct, it would therefore have been on his return visit from Arabia to Damascus that things really came to a head. And there was a Jewish conspiracy against him. Now, writing to the Corinthians, Paul describes what happened. So if you look at 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 32 to 33. And I quote, In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Remember those pictures you drew in Sunday school? Saul then, well this is where it comes in, Saul then made his way to Jerusalem, having escaped in this interesting manner from Damascus. But what is certain in all this is that three years elapsed between Saul's conversion and his arrival in Jerusalem. Didn't get a very enthusiastic welcome in Jerusalem. I can't imagine why, can you? Believers in Jerusalem must have heard, doubtless they'd heard, about his conversion must have been the talk of the community. They'd heard about his baptism and they'd heard about his preaching campaigns in Damascus. But despite this, chapter 9 verse 26 tells us, and I quote, they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. So in spite of all that had happened, to him and all the preaching that he'd done, they were still afraid and didn't believe it. And they kept their distance from him. But there was one exception. And that exception 
was Barnabas. And Barnabas lived up to his name. And his name means, you'll see it in Acts 4.36, son of encouragement. It wasn't actually his name, it was his nickname. But it's Barnabas that he's known. His really name was Joseph. But he was known as Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because he had such a powerful ministry of encouragement. And he's the one who sees Saul sitting on his own on the back row in the Jerusalem church, and nobody's speaking to him. Nobody's looking at him, except with these sideways glances, you know. But Barnabas went up, befriended him, welcomed him, introduced him to the leadership, notably Peter and James, James the brother of Jesus, that is. And that happened during his stay of about around a fortnight. You can see that he refers to it in Galatians 1 and verse 18. Barnabas made sure that the leadership were aware of what had happened to Saul on the Damascus road and how, and I quote from verse 27, in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Now, in my opinion, the support given to Saul by Ananias in Damascus and by Barnabas in Jerusalem was absolutely crucial in his development. If it hadn't been for those two guys, well, yes, the Lord can do anything, we know, but he uses us. And Ananias and Barnabas were open to God to be used by them. Now, the apostles obviously accepted Saul because he began to preach in Jerusalem, presumably with their authority, and he debated with a group from Greece, the Jews from Greece, who are called the Grecian Jews. But they, verse 29, but they tried to kill him. So Saul was advised to leave the city, not only by the brothers, but also by the Lord, when he fell into a trance while praying at the temple. And at the same time, the Lord confirmed in that trance that Saul's mission was to the Gentiles. Look at Acts 22, 17 to 21 for details about that. And so Saul leaves Jerusalem and he returned to Tarsus via the coastal port of Caesarea. Let's move on to verses 25 to 30. Meanwhile, the church in Antioch, Antioch was the capital of Syria, was growing rapidly. Many founder members of this church, interestingly, were friends of Stephen. They had fled up the coast when Stephen had been martyred to the city. And it was in Antioch, interestingly, as I'm sure you know, that the followers of the way first became known as Christians, which we pronounce Christians. Actually, it should be Christians because they were, it means belonging to Christ. Christians. Now, the apostles in Jerusalem had heard all about things going on in Antioch. And like any headquarters, they were concerned about what those some things might be. And so, guess who they sent to suss it out? Correct. Barnabas. Barnabas was sent there 
to see what was happening and report back. But when Barnabas got there, he was so impressed with what was going on in the church at Antioch, he decided to stay there. And he became one of the leaders of the church in Antioch. Look at chapter 13 of Acts verse 1. And Barnabas, who had a shrewd eye, realised that all these new converts in Antioch desperately needed a solid grounding in their faith and that he couldn't provide this for them on his own, but he knew someone who could help him. So we see in verses 25 to 26, and I quote, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And verse 26 tells us that for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul gave in-depth teaching about the Christian faith and, quote, great numbers of people benefited from this. I think they must have been amazing Bible studies. I wish I could have been there. Now, here's an interesting point that we often overlook. Or maybe you don't, but I find that it happens. Stephen's friends in the church seem to have accepted Saul into their midst without any apparent problems. Now, that's quite amazing when you think that Saul, this guy who'd come in to teach them, was actually involved in the death of their friend Stephen to the extent he was martyred, and here he is, teaching them what it means to be a Christian. Just amazing. And I think that is because, I can't prove it, but I think it is probably because Barnabas had done a brilliant job of preparing their hearts to receive Saul before he went off to Tarsus to bring him back. That's my explanation. And I think that would be just typical of the Barnabas that we see in Scripture. Verse 27, we find that during that time, some prophets from Jerusalem arrived in Antioch and one of them was called Agabus. Agabus. Look at verse 28. Under the anointing of the Spirit, he prophesied that, quote, a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world, which happened during the reign of Claudius. That's Emperor Claudius. Now, Paul would meet Agabus again later on in his life. In fact, in Caesarea, when he was on his way to Jerusalem many years later. And the church in Antioch responded magnificently to the need. And each person gave as much as they could to provide help for their brothers and sisters in the area of Judea, which included Jerusalem. You can see that in verse 29. Now, this was a mark of how much the church in Antioch had grown. It was now in a position to assist the mother church, if you like, down in Jerusalem. And look at verse 30. It was Barnabas and Saul who took their gift, the gift from the church of Antioch, to the elders in Jerusalem for helping those who were suffering from the famine. Now we move into 
Acts chapters 13 and 14. Acts 13 and 14. And we're going to look at Paul's first missionary journey, which took place in AD 48. AD 48. And I'm sure you know quite a bit about his missionary journey. I'm, I'm not going to go through it blow by blow, so to speak. But I'm just going to mention one or two highlights, if you like, as we go along. And please, in your own time, homework, read it through carefully yourself so you really get what was happening. We talked about the church in Antioch up till now. It had a really large role to play in Paul's development. It played a formative role in his ministry not just his ministry, I think, but also that of Barnabas as well. And they both finished up on the leadership team, which you can see at the start of Acts 13. And it was during one of the church leadership's worship, prayer and fasting sessions in AD 48 that God spoke. And you can see it in verse 2, chapter 13. Quote, Set apart for me... Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Now, of course, to lose Barnabas and Saul off your leadership team, we think we've got problems. But, you know, when you think about their situation, how would you like to lose Barnabas and Saul off? in your church and yet wonderfully the church at Antioch did what the Lord asked them without any problems at all they were obedient to God's call and you see in verse 3 quote placed their hands on them and sent them off in other words they prayed God's blessing on them and I'm sure they didn't forget to keep on praying for them as well and this is where we meet John Mark the first time, John Mark, actually Barnabas and Saul had brought him back from Jerusalem when they'd gone down there with the gift. Uh, if you see back at chapter 12 and verse 25, and he accompanied them, quote, as their helper, verse 5. That was his role. His role was to help Barnabas and Saul. And we look now at verses 4 to 12, you see how their first port of call was Cyprus. Now, I think this was down because of Barnabas, because as I'm sure you all know, Cyprus was where Barnabas came from. It was his homeland. He knew about that. He knew about Cyprus. He knew about what they were going to face, how best to tackle it, and so on. So they go off to Cyprus. And it's at verse 9 that we see that Saul was now also called Paul. So it's at the start of this first missionary journey that we get this name change. <clears throat> the name Saul meant asked, or more particularly, asked of God. Asked of God. Saul was a Hebrew name 
which spoke of a Jewish background. So if you knew anybody who was called Saul, you thought, hello, they're Jewish. You know, like we associate certain names with certain cultures and, and that, don't we? We're just the same. The name Paul, I'm not sure if you know what that means. The name Paul actually means little. The name Paul means little, possibly referring to his physical stature. Because the best records, the best we can get from the records is that he was small of stature. And Paul was a Roman name. A Roman name that would indicate a Hellenistic, which is a posh word for Greek, Hellenistic Gentile background. So we've got the Jew going to the Gentiles and identifying himself, if you like, with the Gentiles. So from the, the fact that from this point he is known as Paul is probably due to that fact that he's now beginning his mission to the Gentiles to which God had called him. Remember when he was back in Straight Street? Okay, fearing what might happen. God said he'd show him what he needed him to do and he was calling him to go to the Gentiles. And also, something else happens here. Not only is there a name change, there's an order change. So no longer is it Barnabas and Saul, it's now Paul and Barnabas. So Paul, from now on, is usually mentioned first. Now what does that indicate? Well, it, I think it's fairly obvious, isn't it? It indicates that Paul's taken over the leadership role of the two from Barnabas. The man who had been Barnabas's protege had now eclipsed him and become his leader. But Barnabas was obviously content to continue with Paul on their journey in the supportive role. And I just think, what humility. What humility on the part of Barnabas. I mean, I think all of us would bristle slightly if the person we've taught becomes better than us or greater than us. It's happened many times in my life, being a teacher. <laughs> but you know, in this sort of situation, and yet Barnabas shows this just, not only is he an encourager, but he's such a humble person. And he accepts the supportive role. Well, in Salamis, their first port of call, Paul used a strategy which he would frequently employ when arriving in a place for the first time. And you'll see this crops up all through his missionary journeys. He went to the synagogues. That was his first place that he went. He went to the synagogues and, quote, proclaimed the word of God, verse 5. Now this, you say, hang on a minute, Ray, I thought he was supposed to go to the Gentiles. Yes, but you see, this doesn't mean he, that he's neglecting that mission to the Gentiles. Indeed, Gentiles would be present in the synagogue. They were called God-fearers. And they were there seeking to worship the one true God. There were Gentiles who were searching. They'd be there in the congregation as well. Look at verse 16. In any case, it was Paul's belief that the gospel, and I'm quoting, is the power of God 
for the salvation of everyone who believes. But it doesn't stop there. Romans 1.16. It goes on. First for the Jew. Then for the Gentile. First for the Jew. Then for the Gentile. So wherever possible, Paul goes to the Jews first. You see, the synagogue provided Paul with a ready-made preaching opportunity. So instead of going down the marketplace and start preaching at Gentiles passing by, what effect would that have had? Well, he goes to the synagogue because there is a group of Jews who would respond to him as a rabbi and there was a group of God-fearing Gentiles who were searching for the truth Let's get them saved and then who knows what can happen. See, this was his strategy and that was why he adopted that strategy. You see, it was the custom at a synagogue, as we saw in the life of Jesus, to invite visitors, especially rabbis such as Paul, to speak to the congregation. And also the people attending would have regular meetings at which Paul could speak. And they knew the Jewish scriptures which Paul sought to use to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah. So it was a win-win all-round situation when you understand it. Now, the rest of the journey we look at in brief. They move on to Paphos, and there we have the whole thing with Bar-Jesus and Sergius Paulus. And then they go across the sea to the areas of Pisidia and Galatia, modern-day Turkey, and they landed at Perga in Pamphylia, And that is where John Mark, quote, verse 13, left them to return to Jerusalem. Don't forget that piece of information. It will crop up again in our next study. And then they move on to Antioch in Pisidia, as opposed to Antioch in Syria, which was their home church. And then on to Iconium, and it was Iconium where there was a plot to capture and stone them, and they escaped. And then they go on to Lystra, and this is where the people think that they're the gods come down on earth, you know, and they call Barnabas Zeus because he doesn't say very much, and Paul Hermes because he never stops saying things. And then Jews from Antioch and Iconium arrived and win the crowd over. Verse 19, and Paul is, this is where Paul is seized and stoned and left for dead. That was at Lystra. And then they go on to Derby, and then they come back again. They do a revisit through Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, Perga. And verse 22, they do that, quote, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, unquote. And not only that, but also warning them of hardships ahead. And they also, as they went around, appointed elders in each of these fledgling churches. So they identified people who they wanted to lead those congregations, those churches, on their return visits. And then they come back to Antioch in Syria, their base, where they, in verse 27, quote, reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Because this would have been wonderful news to the church in Antioch. It would have contained not only Jews, but also Gentiles. It was a mixed church, very much. 
Antioch, but to hear of what was happening up in Turkey and what had happened uh, when they'd preached the gospel and all the things that happened to Paul. Just imagine a report like that coming to your church meeting. And it seems likely that they remained there in Antioch for about a year. Now then, no sooner was Paul back in Antioch than he was confronted by a group of Jewish Christians who'd come from Jerusalem and Judea. Judea is sort of like the district in which Jerusalem is situated, down in the south of Palestine. These Judaizers, which is the name that's used to describe them, were of the firm opinion that to be saved, Gentile converts must also do two things. They must, first of all, obey the law of Moses, and secondly, be circumcised as a mark of their undertaking to do so. Salvation did not come through Christ alone. Gentile believers had to become Jews first in order to become Christians. And you'll see this in chapter 15 and verse 2. We will revisit 15 shortly. They were implying that Paul was watering down the gospel to make it more palatable, to make it more acceptable to the Gentiles, that he was therefore a man-pleaser and not a true apostle of the Christian faith. We'll do more about that when we get to study four. This point of view all stemmed from fear. From fear on the part of these conservative with a small c Jewish Christians led by converted Pharisees. Chapter 15 verse 5. That's who they were. Converted Pharisees and their followers. Their concern was this, you see, that the moral standards of the law would not be upheld among these Gentile converts. There was a certain standard you had to achieve, you know, and that standard was set out in the law of Moses. So you needed to obey the law of Moses to behave in the correct way. This is the way the Judaizers saw it. Some Judaizers had even followed in Paul's footsteps around Galatia and told his Gentile converts that they must also be circumcised and follow all the Jewish laws and customs in order to be saved. And this was the background to Galatians, to the letter to the Galatians. That's the background. Galatians is the first letter Paul ever wrote to a church, or in this case, more accurately, a group of churches. It was written in AD 48 to 49. Therefore, Galatians, believe it or not, is the earliest document included in the New Testament. The Gospels are not the earliest documents in the New Testament. I know they're first but they're not the earliest documents. They're there because of their subject matter, not because it's chronological order. And let's put another one on top of that, which is that Paul's letters don't appear in the New Testament in the order in which they were written either. In fact, I'm at a loss to discover why they are in this particular order. I've no idea, but there must have been some rhyme or reason for it. And those of you who studied theology can probably enlighten me. Not now, afterwards. Mm -hmm. 
Let's consider Paul's letters for a moment while we've raised the subject of the letter to the Galatians. It's unlikely, in my opinion, that Paul ever envisaged that his letters would one day be included in a collection called the New Testament. If he had realised that his letters would be read, poured over, debated by Christians for thousands and thousands of years, it's possible that he may well have written them in a completely different way. But then perhaps we'd have lost some of their immediacy, their potency, their freshness and their intimacy as a result. And here's another point to remember and it's very important. Paul never wrote any of these letters in the New Testament just for the sake of it. You know, like we sometimes write letters to people just for the sake of it, how you getting on, how you doing sort of thing. No, never. They were all written for a particular reason or purpose. For example, to answer questions he was asked, to tackle a situation that had come to his attention, to exhort and encourage those facing difficulties and hardship, to plead for a change in attitude and or behaviour, to give advice to fellow workers. That's just some of the reasons to be going on with. So what we're actually doing is reading letters never intended for us, yet which still have a great deal to say to us. I'll say that again. We're reading letters never intended for us, yet we still have a great deal to say to us. Therefore, it is of vital importance, and I cannot stress this too much, and you will by no means be surprised to hear me banging on about this. It's vital we understand the context and background to each one. Otherwise... We get misunderstandings and misinterpretations. They're bound to occur, as has happened many times in the past and no doubt will again in the future. So, you see, on hearing that Judaizers had been busy peddling their views around the churches in Galatia and screwing up his converts, Paul was not amused. So he sits down and he writes this letter. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And words to that effect. Pretty strong stuff, Galatians. Because he's so angry that these Judaizers have gone around and just undermined everything that he said and done, and he's not having it. And so he knows he has to write to them. And so we get the letter to the Galatians. Bit more homework. Read the letter to the Galatians with that in mind uppermost in your mind context and background and if you do that it makes far more sense than just reading Galatians because my Bible study notes say I've got there just bear that in mind now next time I will be providing you with for those who would like it a 13 page I think it is handout of synopses of all Paul's letters saying why he wrote them, what the background and context was and what they contain. Because I haven't got time to go through each one of them um, in our Bible studies. But 
there will be those available to you next time if you'd like to take them away and use them. You're most welcome. So let's move on now to chapter 15 for our final section. And that's Acts 15 verses 1 to 31. Now clearly this circumcision issue and whether they need to become Jews to become Christians, all that sort of thing, was going to rumble on and on. So decisive action was required. So the Antioch church sent Paul and Barnabas at the head of a group to Jerusalem to discuss the matter with the leaders there and get it sorted once and for all. And in Acts 15, we see that a series of meetings then took place. And at the first meeting, Paul and Barnabas gave a report of all that had happened on their missionary journey around Turkey, presumably including their view on the circumcision issue. Next, the Judaizers gave their diametrically opposed opinion. And the apostles and elders then withdrew to consider the matter. And after considerable discussion, Peter addressed the apostles and elders. And drawing on his own experiences, Peter spoke of how the Gentile believers had been saved through God's grace and baptised in the Spirit, just as they, the Jewish Christians, had been. Remember the whole thing with Cornelius? This was proof, says Peter, that God accepted Gentiles as they were. So how could the leaders of the church insist on them becoming Jews? Well, much further debate went on and then the apostles and elders and the whole assembly gathered back together. They all reconvened. And after further testimony from Paul and Barnabas, James proceeded to summarise what had been said with the addition of relevant scripture that he thought was pertaining to the situation and to give a decision. And this was the decision that circumcision was not required. So Gentiles having to become Jews was not an issue. It was not to be required. But, but, perhaps in a nod towards the Judaizers to pacify them, if you like, he did lay down certain stipulations covering areas where the Gentiles were felt to be weak and vulnerable. And these were, in verse 20, quote, they were to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Now, obviously this wasn't the end of the issue and it will crop up again. But that was the decision made by the Jerusalem Council. Observing these would enable the integration of Jews and Gentiles into the church to progress much more smoothly. Well, there seems to have been unanimous agreement with the contents of the letter that was drawn up by James. And this letter was to be taken by Judas and Silas, yes, that Silas, who were leaders in the Jerusalem church. They were to take this letter to be read to the Gentile believers in Antioch. 
and beyond. And when these letters, this letter was read, we read that they were greatly encouraged by what the letter said. The significance of this is huge because this compromise helped the church to grow without the hindrance of cultural differences. And here's something even more significant to close with, that baptism rather than circumcision became the mark of becoming a Christian. Baptism rather than circumcision. And speaking as a man, I'm extremely grateful. Next time, we will be looking at the rest of Paul's journeys, his letters and his imprisonments and what happened to him in the end. And that will be on the 12th of November. 12th of November, second Sunday in the month.